On this episode of Resi Week, AV Pro Edge manufacturers in America, USB complications, and securing the home network. All this and more on this episode of Resi Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is Resi Week, episode 387, Made in America. Welcome to this episode of Resi Week, your weekly roundup for all the latest news and stories for the residential AV industry. I'm your host, Matty Scott for avnation.tv. And this week, I'm pleased to be joined by three of my good friends. First, we have Kat Wheeler. She's an account executive at One Firefly. Congrats on the new gig, Kat. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thank you for being here. Then we have... Uh, another person with a new gig. Uh, Jason Knott is now a data solutions architect and evangelist for DTools. How are you doing, Mr. Knott? I'm doing great, Matt. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. This is his first official day on the job uh, when this airs. So yeah, congrats on the first day. You, are you going to take pictures? I probably should. You should. <laughs> I, I did that for my daughters for their job at Walgreens. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. First new job in like 30 years. You got to do it. Uh, then last but not least, uh, not with a new job, unfortunately, is Mr. Jeremy Glowacki. He's the executive editor at Residential Tech Today, and we're really glad he's still there. How you doing, Jeremy? Hey, I appreciate you uh, liking that I'm still where I am. That was kind of a weird backhanded <laughs> statement. But uh, hey, you know, I, I've been uh, looking for, you know, any new exciting gigs out there. So no, I'm kidding. I, I'm I'm good where I am. I'm happy, and and I'm also happy to finally be on with Jason because usually you can't have competitive editors on the same podcast. And oh, I'd do it. I wouldn't care. And now the brain power is just going to spew out of this podcast because cats here. That's the only reason. It's exactly. Yep. It's the reason. Exactly. All right. So first things first. Um, happy Canada Day. A couple of days ago. Uh, happy July Fourth a day ago, I think, based on when this uh, releases. So we're going to start it off with a very fun little like raw pro America uh, story from CE Pro. AV Pro Edge is going to manufacture in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, they are bringing back manufacturing uh, to the U.S., which is has been a fun little trend that's been taking off a little bit uh, with some of the companies I follow. Um, Jeff Murray, their CEO says that they cannot be more proud of this historic evolution in their company. Uh, they're growing at an amazing pace and are adding key production level manufacturing jobs, uh, in Sioux Falls, the place that they love. Uh, this is, this is huge because there's so little of this in general, especially in the tech field. Kat, what does this mean for, for AV Pro Edge? What does this mean for the the industry as a whole? I think it's a great signal. I think, you know, over the last couple of years, we saw how supply chain can be affected by the import importation, is that a word, of goods uh, from overseas. So taking kind of that autonomy on themselves to be able to manufacture their own goods here locally. It also, you know, cuts down on expense from a logistics and travel standpoint. And then I think the most important impactful thing about it is what it says about our industry. They're obviously making a huge investment, so they have to be doing super well. And I think that says a lot of great things about our industry. I know as a company, they're maybe 10 years old, relatively new mm -hmm. speaking. So to make a, an investment that large says really good things. So I think it's an amazing thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. Jason, 
this is this is kind of the pipe dream for a lot of companies, right? They talk about wanting to produce things locally, um, but it is an incredible challenge to do that. Do you foresee this being, because uh, off the top of my head, I can't think of another company that does this level of, I, I don't want to say precision electronics, but precision electronics, right? We've got some speaker manufacturers that manufacture in the U.S., uh, there are a couple of companies that assemble in the U.S., but don't do real, I don't want to say real manufacturing, but you know what I mean. Um, does this signal a an opportunity, a path that additional companies may be able to follow the lead on? I mean, I think ultimately it's a numbers game um, in terms of, you know, whether or not this is going to add up. I think companies... As much as they might want to do this, it's all going to come down to does this actually work out from a numbers standpoint. But I remember Peerless AV, Jeremy can attest to this a few years back, Peerless AV made a big deal out of the fact that they were coming only to America um, and they make, you know, outdoor TVs and, and outdoor uh, audio mm -hmm. racks and things of that nature. So maybe a little less techy than uh, AV Pro Edge. I think it means something to a lot of customers. Um, I don't know how many, but to some customers, you know, we all drive Hondas and Subarus and things like that, Toyotas. Um, but there's there's some people who really, really want to buy American. And I think it'll it'll make um, it'll be attractive to some of those people. And I have noticed over the last several years, you see people talking more and more about this. I know there's a new company, uh, PerfTech, came out with a router on the home networking side, and they were touting that they were American-made, all all U.S. Uh, components. So, um, And then Kat hit the nail on the head there, the supply chain part, but I'll throw in also this trend really started with the tariffs, you know, which mm -hmm. preceded the pandemic and the supply chain woes. That was when we first even heard about people wanting to, you know, come back to the U.S. So, um I don't know. I think it bodes well. Uh, I do think it all comes down to the pocketbook of the customer and the pocketbook of the manufacturer, whether or not they ultimately do a decision like this. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Jeremy, I'm really glad that Jason mentioned the pocketbook of both the manufacturer and the customer because th there's a company I follow um, called Origin, and they make, they make jeans and they make boots and they make camouflage hunting gear and all this stuff, and they make it in Oregon. Fantastic. It's completely sourced from materials made, uh, or sorry, in Maine, my mistake, um, made in the U.S., manufactured, sewn in the U.S. The, the whole the whole front-to-end supply chain is American. They're also significantly more expensive than, you know, a pair of jeans you're going to go pick up at, at, at Walmart or whatever, um, a quality aside. Is there a concern that, like, are, are, are you, are clients willing to pay more potentially for a product that is made in the U.S. opposed to something made in Shenzhen or Malaysia or wherever the heck else they make it? Is that going to factor into a lot of companies, uh, you know, uh, approaches to, quote unquote, made in America? I think that's a really valid point. I don't know if a component within an integrated system it has that big of an effect, you know, like it's one thing to talk about a consumer good, something that mm -hmm. you really feel like you're wearing on your body or putting in your home as a, a, as a statement piece or something like that. You say, Hey, this is American made, you know, that's something to be proud of if that's what you're into. 
Um, but as a piece of an entire smart home or integrated commercial system, it seems like you're just putting one little piece that's American made versus all everything else that's from China mm -hmm. or somewhere else, you know? And it seems like that is a hard sort of case to make that this one piece needs to be more expensive. Now, if that piece is so, that component is so important uh, because it is a distribution piece that if you lose it because you can't get it during a supply chain breakdown or some chip shortage or something like that, if you can get that more efficiently from the U.S., you're willing to pay more for that mm -hmm. luxury, you know? Um, I think that's more of the case there. Um, not as much about the marketing aspect of it or the, um, you know, made in the USA kind of rah-rah part of it. It's really just about, hey, I'm going to know I can get this when I need it because they're not going to have the same breakdowns of, as far as shipping and that type of thing. Um, I think it's, you're talking about, Board level, I, I was kind of confused when I talk about board level, are you still talking about components coming from around the world that need to go onto the board? So you may still have supply chain issues with mm -hmm. them making, because you're still sort of assembling the board here. You're not getting all of the chips and pieces that go on the board from the US. So that, that yeah. still may be a hiccup, but um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a nice story. It's great that they can do it. I don't know. If people are going to say, I'm going to pay more for that just because it's made in the USA, that seems a little bit of a stretch. You know what I think will be interesting is we, we know we hear companies pulling out of China because of the tariff issue and then because of the supply chain issue. I will be fascinated to see because there's a lot of anti-China sentiment. You know, in the U.S. right now, I don't know if it bleeds up into Canada or not, Matt, but there's a ton. It'll be interesting to see if if people start making these sorts of statements for political reasons. We're pulling out of China, our China manufacturing, not because of yeah. the tariffs, not because of supply chain, but because we feel that that regime is a threat. It'll be interesting to see if it progresses that far. Well, politics gets into everything other than this show, so we'll be fine. Um, the, the, the last thing I'll say just before we move is, man, we use AV Pro Edge just because it stinking works. We love that stuff. <laughs> The distributors I've talked to, they said that they're selling it like hotcakes. Incredible. Oh, it's, it, yeah. it is rock solid uh, out of every single, and again, this is not a plug for them. This is just, we used a couple of weeks on a, on a house of worship project where we had three different brands in there and theirs was the only one that continually worked. No problems. Fantastic. Uh, and the other ones were existing. We didn't supply them. Because we use AV Approach. All right, let's change topics before it sounds like an infomercial. This comes to us from Residential Tech Today uh, and Brandon White over there. Are you struggling to find USB-C benefits in your AV solutions? Um, if you followed the USB-C story at all uh, over the last couple of years, it has been touted as the connector that's going to rule it all. It's just going to work. It's just going to plug and play. Everything will connect to it. It'll pass everything, blah, 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 blah. That's only partially true uh, as someone who deals with this in the field a lot. Jason, when you read through this kind of story, when you have followed the hype of this for years, what Brandon's talking about here is not to anyone who's working in the field. They've seen this. They've seen USB-C cables that won't pass HD video or that won't charge or won't connect to anything. They've seen ports on computers that are listed as USB 4, and they're really only USB 3, even though they're both USB C connectors. 
what has to be done in that industry to make USB-C the promise that it, it, it was you know, devised as? I mean, ultimately, you talk to any integrator, why they select any product is quality and reliability is number one. And, you know, I got a little personal story about USB-C. I'm working, I'm on my brand new Dell uh, D-Tools computer here for very first, uh, you know, video call. And it comes with a docking station. And my connection to my um, remote monitors is USB-C. And I can see a a distinct lesser quality um, in the monitors um, coming from the USB, then I have one another monitor that connected directly with HDMI to HDMI. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It could be that this monitor is crappy. If you can say that on a podcast, are we are we allowed to say crappy? Sure. Yeah, that's fine. It could be that, but I think ultimately for integrators, you know, especially since they're if they're looking at this as a solution for distributing video from a multi-room standpoint, it's going to have to be, you know the best quality because that's going to come back to bite them. So I I would just default back to that. Quality should be the number one decision. Jeremy, should integrators be bringing in and doing massive bench testing? Because like we we did a a project uh, three months ago and USB-C was the headache that we had. It was the only problem. And we were using quote unquote, tested and verified and certified components from a manufacturer and only half of them worked. How do you deal with that? Yeah, I think you're, you're onto it. You've got to have um, your own testing. And I think that as long as you can trust that a brand is going to be consistent with what their product does, I think that's the key. And I don't think um, this article says anything about inconsistency of a specific um model or whatever you want to call it of a USB-C cable. It's really just that you've got to know what you're buying because certain cables, they to, to bring the price down to a point that is affordable for the application, they're not going to put all of the features in that are capable of USB-C spec. So you may have distance limitations on a cable. You may have um, power charging limitations. I mean, I had that exact situation with a um, security camera that I that I was testing, and I thought, you know, security ch- camera, you, you charge it up 100%. That thing should should last you. I mean, I would hope for it be like a six month thing, but it's they say two months. I'm getting a mm-hmm. month out of it, and it's not going to last. I'm not going to keep it because it's just not. That's not good to have to keep charging this thing. But I lost the cable. I misplaced the cable that came with the camera. And so I was going through all of these USB cables and I, I found what I thought was the right one. And it takes like 24 hours to charge because it's not the right one, obviously. Yep. And so you just, you think any cable with the plug that's the right one should work, but it's not the spec that goes with that particular product because, you know, it, that one didn't need to charge for, for whatever reason. Um, and so... I think you need to know what specs you are going after, and then you test that to make sure it's going to work in your application. Obviously, other certain jobs are different than others, so maybe you do have um, applications where you tested it; it's not going to work in the application that you didn't test. But yeah, I, I think like any product, before you put it in a job, you need to know what it can do. Cat, part of my frustration with this story 
is that there are so many unknowns. When we used to have, and I'm going to sound really old here and I'm cool with it. When we used to have VGA or component video, you always knew what failed. When we went to HDMI, things got a little murkier. Now we're into USB-C. Again, not always used for video, but as a connection. It is a cluster to determine what's going on. And the reason I'm, I'm bringing this up is the camera that I'm using right now, that one, is USB 3. Uh, or sorry, USB 2 high speed. So on my MacBook, it needs the adapter. I used an adapter from a company that we use all the time. That's phenomenal. It worked for six months with the new computer that only has USB-C. Same port, like everything's set out properly. I literally just plug it in and it works. All of a sudden, for Riverside, the platform we record on, it wouldn't see it. Days of back and forth with tech support. Different adapters wouldn't work. Going back to the same adapter wouldn't work. Plugging it in on Zoom, everything worked. Finally ordered a new adapter from Apple. That adapter's thinking works. And no one knows why. So when we start looking at designing with USB-C, how do you explain to a customer when a problem like mine shows up in their boardroom or in their conference room? You can't, because it doesn't make you sound like you know what you're doing. You know, the, I don't know what happened, but here we fixed it. Is not a, it's not an answer. Like We don't know why it didn't work. It just didn't, but here you go. Look, ever since I started in this industry so many years ago, I have dreamed of the one cable that does everything solution. I think we all have, and we've been promised it any number of times. I do not care what it is. But if I could just get rid of the drawer O cables that I have in my desk that, you know, I keep because essentially one day I'm going to have to plug something in that requires one of those things with the one of a billion adapters that I have to use whatever thing that might be or the, the adapters that I carry around with me when I travel because who knows when I'm going to have to plug in and who knows which one will work with whatever cable that somebody happens to maybe possibly have. It's so frustrating. And if it's frustrating for us and we do this for a living, I cannot imagine what the end users feel like. There has got to be a better way. And I cannot believe that with all the smart people in our industry, nobody can figure this out. Is it that people are trying to do too much? I don't know. Look, Jeremy made an excellent point, which is that you do need to know what you're specifying and what the requirements for that are and what you're buying and will that work together? That's an excellent point. But I've just got to think there's an easier way to, to mix and match all of these things and make it all work. I just can't. I just can't believe it's this hard. My, my personal preference is the fact that USB 3 and USB 4 are the same connector, same adapter with totally different speeds, totally different bit rates, totally different video support. It's fantastic when you build out systems. All right, let's change topics before I just grump about that one the rest of the day. Um, this comes to us from CE Pro, securing the smart home network, the risks of IoT. Security, cybersecurity professionals say the Internet of Things is more like the Internet of Threats. All right, read through this article. It is really, really good and also uh, highly disturbing. Jeremy, let me let me start with you on this. We've been preaching cybersecurity, heck, on this show um, for years. We've been preaching it with IoT for years. There is next to nothing that the average customer in our industry, not not just just a consumer, but a customer in our industry can or will do to actually secure IOT. 
Where does that leave us? Trusted advisor is the term that I think a lot of integrators um, should use for themselves, um, where they're they're not only installing, integrating high high end equipment, um, smart home equipment. They're also the person that the consumer goes to for questions, and they should be advising their clients and they should be taking matters into their own hands when they do their own installations, obviously, and providing security on the network. But if there are products in the, in the, um, in the system that are IOT that maybe they didn't install, they need to be kind of handholdy with their client and talk to them about the, the opportunity to change passwords, to make two factor authentication, things like that with their, with their consumer products. But, um, there's certain things that they may not even know are vulnerable. You know, um, we talk security cameras, obviously the big, big one, but, uh, you're, um, you're, you're simply, you're simply dealing with people that don't even change their passwords, you know, like that, that, that's an area where I think, um, you, you can kind of get in over your head on a lot of this stuff. But if you just go down to the basics, a lot of that isn't being done, um, so, like I said, two-factor two um, authentication is is kind of getting more popular these days. But if you're leaving your um, original password, your default password in place, obviously that's a terrible thing to do. And I've sat through some of these security sessions at uh, like buying group meetings, and simply doing a complicated password is a huge step when you're dealing with network. Uh, security. Um, and I, I just think we talked before the, the session started, we're dealing with, you know, integrators and maybe not even taking it as seriously as they should. So um, I think that's where you start. And then you also act as an advisor to your client and tell them if you're putting anything in the system that is something we didn't put in, we didn't secure, you need to make sure you're doing your part to keep that out of the vulnerability loop. Cat. There are so many products that we think are secure and they're not. <laughs> um, but there's also, there are a lot of best practices that can be followed to Jeremy's point that never are, including obviously the simple ones like changing passwords, but the, the slightly more complicated ones like VLANs. Most um, ISP routers don't, properly support VLANs, right? There's no firewall between VLANs. And then half the time you put in a quality router and you create a VLAN and the consumer hates it because they can't just quickly connect to, you know, their, their doorbell because it's got to go properly out and then back in. What is the solution there? Is there a solution? I don't know. I don't know if there's a solution. I think this is, I don't know if I've told you, but I'm having a midlife crisis. And this is the topic that makes me feel like one of those old men that's like sitting on their front porch, like screaming at the kids to get off their lawn. That's me. Because it's like, I don't know how many times we, we can say it. I don't know how many, you know, seminars or like classes that people go to on network security and they just still don't change their router password from admin admin. And it's so stressful because all even if you do all of the basic things right to again Jeremy's point, if the custom if the homeowner adds one thing on that network and doesn't secure that, then the whole thing's, you know, vulnerable. I mean, I wrote two books about it and people take them as like they're a joke, but they're legit. Like you could do all of those things in real life. You could 
you could you can really actually harm people and people say like it doesn't apply to me i don't have anything anybody would want well it takes is you know one thing for you to contribute to any number of security issues um i think i shared with you there's a really good article in the bbc uh, that came out last week about it that I think is is probably the best article I've read on it because it really relates it to end users in a way that I hadn't read before, where it takes it, you know, step by step as to what what the actual effect is on you as a person. And I think maybe making it more relatable to to a human and telling them specifically what those vulnerabilities are rather than just kind of a broad, scary, you know, internet security, you can get hacked message is is much more, I don't know, maybe we'll cause a change who knows so so here's why i see a light at the end of the tunnel in this issue you know jeremy mentioned integrators being trusted advisors for their customers what we're seeing we are seeing slowly uh more integrators be um charging and becoming getting service agreements with their customers and i think that is going to be the the fact that they're going to have a service agreement and then they're going they're going you know little bobby's going to invite his his friend over with his um switch and his switch is going to plug into their network and bring in a bring in something bad um the integrator is going to no matter how secure he makes the customers network there's something can, like vulnerability like that can happen if he doesn't set it up properly but i think if they're doing service agreements then this is going to be a key element of of service agreements and a key component for integrators to charge recurring monthly revenue for their businesses. So we did a survey in CE Pro a couple of years ago, and it was 73% of integrators are doing nothing. And the 27% who are doing it are really, I would bet 99% of those 27% are relying purely on the embedded components that are in the hardware. They're not actually adding any sort of uh, additional cybersecurity uh, firewall software or anything like that to, to what they're doing. Um, CTA has this cybersecurity checklist. It's been out for 10 or 12 years. 17 points of what the integrators who use it they love it. They show it to the customer and say, these are the 17 things I'm going to do to your home. By the way, are, did any of the other integrators who are talking to you about doing this project talk about the 17 things they're going to do to help secure your network, your smart home? It's a total differentiator and almost nobody uses it, which is the sad part. It's free download on the CTA smart home division site. So I see a light at the end of the tunnel on this that's going to come from the recognition of more integrators realizing that they can charge for this on a recurring revenue basis and build it into service agreements. So let me let me push back on that for one second. Liability. I want, and again, this is going to sound counterintuitive. I want the least amount of liability between my company and my customers, because with all due respect, my customers are not always the smartest. And if I have a SLA with them saying that we're going to help protect you, there is so little that my company can do to actually protect my customer. And let me give you a quick example. We work for a national quick serve restaurant chain for a local owner who owns seven or eight restaurants. We go in every time we're there, we change security on their ISP router and on their Wi-Fi's that are internal for the, uh, for the owner to use again, a bunch of smart home things in their, in their restaurants. And then the restaurant has some corporate IT that does some other things that we don't touch. We have no access to every time 
the IT provider for this national quick serve chain sends in a contractor to adjust something and change something in their modem, their router to do things. They always touch whatever gear we've put in. And you know what they do to that gear? They factory reset it every stinking time. So if I have an SLA saying, hey, we're going to help protect you, unless I have a bulletproof liability contract, they're going to look at that and say, oh, no, we can we can see that. And yeah, you didn't protect us. You know the limitation of liability contract that is so prevalent in the security industry. So um, there needs to be a limitation of liability contract with a customer. You know how many customers have successfully sued ADT who had that uh, limitation of liability? Zero. So yep. there's there you're going to have a you're going to have a limit. You're going to have some liability, but in the case of like the ADT, it's two hundred and fifty dollars, I believe, yeah. or five hundred dollars. It might be the maximum. So um, there. I believe as part of the cybersecurity solution, there will need to be a limitation of liability contract. Absolutely. Do you think, though, on that note, the customers that sign up for ADT, they kind of walk in expecting that, right? They're buying for peace of mind. I wonder, because we have a we have a generic, um, or, or sorry, I should say a very simplified liability and, and contract terms on anything that we do uh, internally. And then we have a expanded one for anything that includes automation and a bunch of other stuff, right? But every basic sale has a basic thing. We have clients that see that and they push back on the basic one. That includes like a basic thing of like, we will record all of your equipment and, and notate what you have and keep that internally. We will take pictures of the installation, not for distribution, but for record keeping. They push back on that stuff. If I have a full limited liability where I'm selling someone on security, I really wonder how many clients are actually going to read that and then push back because I'm touting how great we are as dealing with security on your network. As you see more commercial integrators moving into the smart home, and, you know, I'll take, there's a guy in Boston um, who, um, uh, TPS Security, um, has recently been doing some fantastic projects, but he came from the commercial side. He has millions of millions of dollars in recurring revenue um, that he's built um, through his commercial relationships with his customers. And he's going to mimic that on the secure on the on the smart home side i think it's it's uh it does i think it's going to require um probably a, a greater level of sophistication in terms of making sure you've got the staff in place that can that can accommodate these needs but there's no question that you know just wait there's going to be some sort of massive hack it's going to happen there's going to, I don't know whose who's equipment or what, but, you know, we that article itself called out, what, Asus, Cisco, Netgear, D-Link, and some others to say avoid these. Um, there's going to be some sort of massive smart home hack that's going to bring even greater awareness to this issue. And then, then customers are going to be asking for it. 
you know, that'll be the big differentiator. They're asking for it versus, hey, I'm trying to ram this down your throat. And I hope you don't worry that, you know, you don't want to sue me at the end. You know, if something does go wrong, they're going to say, please, 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 Matt, protect me. How can you protect me? Yeah, that's a great point. All right, let's leave it with that. Thank you all for joining us. Kat, if people want to connect with you, learn more about everything that One Firefly does, where can they do that? They can go to onefirefly.com or email me at kwheeler at onefirefly.com. Excellent. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, Jason, if people want to connect with you in your new gig, because uh, your other email doesn't work anymore, uh, where can they find you over at Dtools? They can email me at jasonk at dtools.com, and that's d-tools.com. Look forward to hearing from everybody. Thank you, my friend. Mr. Glowacki, if people want to connect with you, learn more about residential tech today and your podcast over there, where can they do that? Uh, go to restechtoday.com and uh, subscribe to the m magazine and uh, newsletter and uh, check out the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Oh, thank you. Always. Uh, for being here. Thank you for joining us. If you'd like to connect with me, you can find me on Twitter at Matt D. Scott and most other social platforms. But more importantly, please visit aviation.tv where you'll find this show as well as a wide variety of other shows with all the verticals that we cover. When you visit the website, please take a moment to check out our supporters. We are extremely thankful for their support and ask that you check them out as well. Thanks again for watching. That's all the time we have for this episode of Resi Week.